One of the ways that Nicolas Maduro keeps the loyalty of the military, he cannot pay them real salaries because the salary of a, of a soldier is, is, is around $10 a month, which is well below the poverty level. So what Maduro does is he controls the, appoint, the military appointments in all of these areas where the drug trade, where illegal mining, where contraband are present. And he says, I'm going to give you a job here because I know you're going to get a parallel salary. And this is the way that he controls and buys loyalty by using this posting system. Maduro is not directly involved in running drugs. All Maduro has done is he set up this system of patronage whereby he appoints people to certain positions and certain places knowing full well that they are going to become involved in illegal activity and profit from it. Over the past three years, Insight Crime, a think tank that studies organized crime and citizen security in Latin America, have been investigating the relationship between the cocaine trade and Venezuela. Part of this investigation focuses on the role of the state, some state actors who are actively involved and other senior state actors who allow and enable the cocaine to flow. In this episode of The Index, from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, we sit down with Jeremy McDermott, co-founder and co-director of Insight Crime, to talk about the investigation and about the link between criminal actors and officials within the Venezuelan government. I'm your host, Thilay Wynn. But before we get to Jeremy, let's first take a moment to look at what a state-embedded actor is. Generally speaking, state-embedded actors corrupt the state, they prevent the state from delivering services, and they undermine the citizens' trust in the institutions. This is Mariana Botero Restrepo, an analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. This lack of trust brings a whole new different set of challenges and of problems, including how to build resilience, how to build a safe community, how to bring development to the most vulnerable populations, and this even brings a problem or a challenge for democracies. State and better actors also co-opt the institutions. They usually divert funds that are meant to provide services for the communities and they use them to their own personal benefit. And it is also a problem because they usually, or it's very common for state and better actors, to have a predatory attitude towards natural resources and communities. Usually behind all of these, there is an economic or a political interest. According to the Global Organized Crime Index, Venezuela sits 18th out of 193 countries around the world for levels of criminality. And it is one of only 16 countries that scored nine or higher out of 10 when it comes to state-embedded actors playing a role in illegal activities. There is a thriving economy in Venezuela around cocaine trafficking and the trafficking of illegal gold. These illegal economies are often promoted by criminal armed groups from Colombia, and they operate in alliance or at least in compliance with the Venezuelan authorities and members of the armed forces. So we believe that these two areas are the areas in which state officials and criminal actors cooperate or collaborate the most. And on top of all of these, if you have uh, military forces that are 
also involved in corruption, that are also involved in criminal activities and that are believed to be related or to often work alongside criminal groups, then you have a much more harmful situation for communities, which is why this is a situation that's particularly pervasive in Venezuela. And that brings us to Jeremy McDermott from Insight Crime, who have been investigating this very issue. Venezuela is an unusual case in Latin American criminal dynamics in that a high percentage of transnational organized crime has strong links or roots within the state. Now, obviously, transnational organized crime is seeking to penetrate the the state in, in almost every nation in Latin America, be it a drug production or a transit nation. You only got to look at Honduras um, and the president Juan Orlando Hernandez to see that there are many nations where organized crime has managed to penetrate government and the state at the highest level. So there are many nations in Latin America where over the last 40 to 50 years, thanks to the funding of political campaigns mainly, organized crime has managed to get a foothold within government at perhaps the highest levels. And how did this happen? You know, what are some of the factors and the conditions that enable that situation in Venezuela? And this is a very complicated situation, and it was a gradual process. So let me try and pick this apart. The first thing is that Venezuela is sat next to the world's biggest cocaine producer. And inevitably, Colombian organized crime has used Venezuela as a transit nation for cocaine being shipped across the world. After the accession to power of President Hugo Chavez, there was a welcoming mat put out for Colombian guerrillas within Venezuela. And this was particularly notable after 2002, when there was a failed coup attempt against Hugo Chavez, where he blamed Colombia and the United States for supporting this coup. Uh, And from this time, we saw Colombian guerrillas getting a warm welcome within Venezuela and setting themselves up along the Colombo-Venezuelan border. And the Colombian guerrillas were, of course, major players in the cocaine business, controlling much of the production from coca bush to crystallized cocaine. And as they came across the border, they brought with them much of their drug trafficking know-how and roots. And the orders from President Chavez to his military was, leave these guys alone. Let them set themselves up in Venezuela, out of reach of the US-backed Colombian security forces, and let them do their own thing. Uh, And their own thing in part was cocaine trafficking. And the Venezuelan military moved from turning a blind eye to this activity to participating in it. And indeed, today, there are many Venezuelan organized crime groups embedded, not just in the Venezuelan military, but other state entities, which have now become either partners of guerrilla groups or former guerrilla groups, or indeed overtaken them and become independent and important players in the world cocaine trade. 
I mean, from what you said, this is obviously a massive oversimplification uh, that I'm uh, rephrasing. It's 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 a matter of geography as well as, I guess, domestic and and international geopolitics that sort of brought Venezuela to this to this point. I think there's one other thing that's worth mentioning that has accelerated this process no end, particularly in recent years, and that is the fact that Venezuela has essentially gone bust. There has been economic collapse under President Nicolas Maduro. There have been massive protests. There have been international sanctions. And Maduro has found himself bankrupt and has needed to secure the loyalty of senior Chavista political figures and the military by allowing them to participate in criminal economies. And these are not just the drug trade, it's also illegal mining and contraband all along the borders. And this is the way he's been able to secure their loyalty by essentially granting them criminal fiefdoms in certain parts of the country, which allow them access to these criminal rents, working in partnership with some of the uh, Colombian guerrilla or former guerrilla groups. And that has been an accelerant. One, in the the penetration of organized crime into the Venezuelan state, and secondly, into the position of Venezuela uh, increasingly as a regional crime hub. So when you were talking about the Maduro regime, you were also talking not just about the political actors, but also about the same guerrilla groups. There has been a change in the Colombian guerrilla situation with the demobilization of of the biggest Colombian rebel group, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, in 2016. And the removal of the FARC from the criminal landscape had had enormous implications both in Colombia and in Venezuela. And their rebel cousins, the National Liberation Army or the ELN, which remain in the field, have gobbled up territory they controlled on both sides of the border. But there's also been a series of dissident FARC groups that we call the ex-FARC mafia that have uh, sprung up, again, on both sides of the border, Colombia and Venezuela, that have sought to keep hold of some of the criminal rents that the, that the now demobilized guerrilla army relied on for, for, for more than five decades. So the Maduro regime is dealing with slightly different actors it's dealing with the ELN, who have been there um, for, for for more than fifty uh, more than fifty years, but very much in the FARC shadow. The ELN are now stepping up and perhaps establishing a hegemony on both sides of the border, which is allowing them to step up their involvement in illegal mining, the contraband across the borders, and of course drug trafficking from Colombia into Venezuela. Yeah, I want to ask you about, you know, other organized crime beyond the drug trafficking. But first, I actually want to ask you a question about one of the investigative series that Insight Crime, your organization has done, and it's called Venezuela's Cocaine Revolution. And I think in there you explain or, you know, the investigative series explains this recent history and growth of the cocaine trade in Venezuela. First, I think as an important international transit hub, but now as a producer as well. And one of the things that was particularly striking was the description of the Maduro regime as the gatekeepers of the cocaine trade. Could you briefly explain what does that mean and whether that involvement um, has changed over the past 
few years. Yes, the the cocaine revolution in in Venezuela investigation highlighted two main things. The first was that the Colombian guerrillas have replicated the drug trafficking infrastructure developed within Colombia over decades within Venezuela. And that is not just the crystallizing cocaine laboratories and the airstrips, but also coca crops. And so the raw material for cocaine is now being grown in Venezuela, and we have seen industrial scale fields within at least three Venezuelan states. That's the first significant change. The second is how the Venezuelan state is profiting and attempting to manage this criminal economy. Due to um, economic collapse and the fact that the Maduro regime is all but bankrupt, they have had to tap into criminal economies as a way to secure the loyalty of military officials and local politicians, the important Chavista figures upon which the regime is built. And this, of course, uh, is a dangerous game. Drug trafficking and organized crime is extremely hard to, to control. And what we've seen um, over the last few years is the Maduro regime supporting certain non-state armed actors or hybrid armed actors and allowing them to manage criminal economies within Venezuela whilst cracking down on others who are not seen as trusted partners for elements of the regime. And that is what we meant when we we talk about the Maduro regime becoming a form of gatekeeper. The Maduro regime needs access to the criminal rents and is trying to minimize the damage that these economies bring in terms of corruption and violence. And it's a it's an extraordinarily difficult balancing act and one that has not always been successful for the Maduro regime. Yeah, that does definitely sound like a very tight rope to work and 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 to to walk. And and as you said, we've seen that um, they've not necessarily been successful at it. But you know, I would just want to follow up on it when you were talking about how you know the state is enabling some criminal markets and groups to thrive, yet at the same time also trying to limit some of the natural consequences of it. How are they still able to effectively control criminal gangs and organizations, in particular like the ultra-violent Megabanthas gangs? They can't control them. What they have done is they have sought to negotiate with certain megabandas. And when these megabandas misbehave or do not fulfill the unspoken agreements, then the Maduro regime has launched security force offensives against them. An example would be the megabanda of El Coqui, which operated in the heart of Caracas, initially was allowed to to operate so long as it didn't engage in kidnapping and didn't cause too much problems for the populations of their area within Caracas. When El Coqui uh, began to defy 
the Caracas authorities, the police and, and the government, there were a series of offensives that were initially unsuccessful. And they used the, the feared fires, which is a special police unit notorious for, for human rights abuses and extrajudicial executions. And after, you know, initial failures, the Venezuelan police began to learn. They went after the support structures. And then in the end, they managed to drive El Coqui out of his stronghold in Caracas, and he was killed in another part of Venezuela. The same thing happened with a dissident element of the FARC guerrillas, the 10th front that was operating in Venezuela without the official blessing of the regime. The military launched an offensive against this guerrilla dissident faction, which was an utter failure. Of course, you know, FARC guerrillas have been fighting the US-backed Colombian military for 50 years, and the Venezuelans were simply not a match for them. It was a disaster. Eight Venezuelan soldiers were kidnapped. The Venezuelans had to withdraw from the area to get the soldiers released. And again, they learnt, and they went after the guerrilla support structures, and they worked with the ELN, another Colombian guerrilla group, against this dissident faction. And only when the ELN got involved was the 10th Front dismantled within Venezuela and its fighters expelled across the border. Oh, that sounds like a very complicated set of actors and a lot of arms and conflict and, yeah, very complicated situation there. I want to go back a bit more to some of the other organized crime activities that you talked about, right? Because we've we've discussed quite a bit on drug trafficking. But like you said, there's also contraband smuggling, arms trafficking, the gold trade, the mining. Does the state also have the same sort of control over these activities as, as they do, for example, for the cocaine? And how do they how do they do that? The state certainly has a, a heavy footprint with the gold. The gold deposits in Venezuela, many are concentrated in the state of Bolivar, and many of the mines are controlled by criminal structures that are known as sindicatos or syndicates. And there's been evidence of local military, local Chavista figures working with different sindicatos to ensure the flow of gold out of these mines with a significant percentage then passing through government hands and the government able to sell it on international markets and get access to desperately needed foreign currency. We've also seen the advance of the ELN, Colombian guerrillas, into this sector. And this takes us back to, to, to the cocaine trade the ELN are seen as trusted partners. They get things done. They have discipline, unlike many criminal groups. And another key issue with respect to the ELN is they were pretty much born out of Cuba. And Cuba has extraordinary influence over Maduro and, and Venezuela. And Hugo Chavez saw um, Fidel Castro as his political godfather. So the links between Venezuela and Cuba are very tight, and therefore the position of the ELN, thanks to this in Venezuela, is one of a trusted partner. Let's say in the future, the economy is able to stabilize and grow, uh, but knowing how much of it is controlled by the government and in a way, by extension, from these you know criminal actors, as we've just been discussing, 
could this be rolled back? Would the state be able to put the genie back in the bottle if the economy stabilizes and, and grow through all of these connections with organized crime? The economic collapse has bottomed out, and this year we're going to see some limited growth, it seems, in Venezuela. And this is in no small part due to the dollarization of the economy. The Bolivar had been suffering, the Bolivar is the Venezuelan currency, had been suffering hyperinflation for years. With the adoption of the dollar, that's provided a little bit of financial stability. However, economic projection is, even if the economy grows you know, 5% every year, um, it will take more than two decades for Venezuela to recover from the economic collapse. So the earnings from criminal rents are going to be necessary for the Chavista regime for the foreseeable future. But let's just say there is a huge economic bounce back or there is a change in regime and there are free and fair elections and and the opposition is able to win power. Even assuming that happens, the longer that, particularly this drug infrastructure, is allowed to develop in Venezuela, the harder it is to dismantle. And Venezuela, particularly the south of the country, is, is, is much like Colombia in the sense that it's very sparsely populated. It's Amazon jungle, triple canopy jungle in many cases, uh, impenetrable. There are no roads. Most you know, travel is done along the rivers. And as the Colombians have found over the last 50 years, it is uh, almost impossible to defeat criminal groups in these remote areas that are funded from the drug trade. So, uh, no, I don't think that the genie can be put back into the bottle, but that depends on how long this status quo is allowed to continue and therefore how deep the roots that organized crime, not just drug trafficking, but other types of organized crime, how deep the roots become embedded in local society, local economy and local government. And I want to come back to you on that, on exactly whether there's anything that can be done to make sure that, you know, the roots doesn't become much more rooted, the, 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 the activities. But I first wanted to ask you about another organized crime group, the Cartel de los Soles, I think the call, the Cartel of the Sons, who they are, how long they've been around, what's their relationship to the state, and how does the state interact with their activities? Because I think they're quite notorious as well, if I'm not wrong. The Cartel of the Sons is a slight misnomer today, but it was born out of the National Guard which in Venezuela has the principal responsibility for guarding the frontiers. And the sons refer to the gold stars that the uh, National Guard generals wear on their epaulets to denote their rank. And initially, the cartel of the sons were senior officers in the national Venezuela National Guard that were first turning a blind eye to cocaine crossing the border then later actively protecting these to today being partners in the cocaine trade. But it is no longer restricted to the, to the National Guard. 
all elements of the military have been penetrated, parts of the police and the political sector. And so the Cartel of the Sons is actually a series of different networks, not working together often in competition, which are all involved in the drug trade in one form or another. And so the Cartel of the Sons is now used to depict organized crime, particularly the drug trade, that is state-embedded in some form. So it has also evolved from what you said, from just, you know, a group that were, were part of the security structures of the state into the political actors as well. So it has, it has in fact, expanded. One of the ways that Nicolas Maduro keeps the loyalty of the military, he cannot pay them real salaries because the salary of a, of a soldier is, is, is around $10 a month, which is well below the poverty level. So what Maduro does is he controls the, appoint, the military appointments in all of these areas where the drug trade, where illegal mining, where contraband are present. And he says, I'm going to give you a job here because I know you're going to get a parallel salary. And this is the way that he controls and buys loyalty by using this posting system. Maduro is not directly involved in running drugs. All Maduro has done is he set up this system of patronage whereby he appoints people to certain positions and certain places, knowing full well that they are going to become involved in illegal activity and profit from it. And that, you know, system of patronage sounds terribly familiar to me because I'm, I'm from Burma, where it's been successive military regimes. And, and, and that's how they control and re- retain, you know, their grip on power as well. It's both fascinating and terrifying. I just have a couple more questions. We've talked about how bad the situation is, how embedded, you know, some of these criminal actors and how in collusion they are with the the, the state in Venezuela. Is there anything that can be done to address these issues? You know, the systemic corruption, the state embedded criminal actors, can things improve? Um, Under the current regime, no. And there are several reasons for this. One of the reasons that there was economic collapse, the principal reason was was the fall in oil prices and the lack of investment in Venezuela in their oil infrastructure when oil has long been their principal export. Uh, And indeed, they are sitting on on more oil reserves than, than Saudi Arabia. So the collapse of the oil prices and an oil industry has been a determinant factor in the current situation. But Venezuela was also a kleptocracy. There was a systematic pillaging of state coffers by Chavista figures. And this this began under, under Hugo Chavez, who would base his official budget on the price of oil being $50 a barrel when the reality was it was $100 a barrel. And that gave Chavez an enormous slush fund with which to operate and do pretty much whatever he wanted. And this, of course, allowed for this systematic kleptocracy. Um, So corruption has become embedded. However, today, there's not much to steal. The state is bankrupt, which brings us again back to the criminal economies and the reliance on criminal economies as 
in many parts of the country, the only uh, economic activity that's generating any money. And until that situation is righted, and so long as there is a dependence on criminal economies by the local communities in this area, it's going to be extremely difficult to undo. And as I said before, the longer that this structure is allowed to continue to evolve, the harder it is going to be to uproot. That's it for this episode. A big thank you to Jeremy McDermott from Insight Crime and Mariana Botero Restrepo for taking part in this episode. We've put a link to Insight Crime's Venezuelan investigations in the podcast notes. There, you'll also find the country profile for Venezuela from the Global Organized Crime Index and a link to the website, ocindex.net. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with an episode on illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing, also known as IUU fishing. You've been listening to The Index from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Tin Lei Win. Thanks for listening.